Welcome to the Better World series of interviews sponsored by CCLA. Their brief to us was a simple one. Go and have some interesting conversations with interesting people about ideas that might help the net zero journey. First up is Jake Fines, Director of Conservation at the Holcomb Estate on the North Norfolk coast and author of Land Healer. Jake's work on the Holcomb Estate has earned him a reputation for radical habitat restoration and agricultural work and for bringing back wetlands, hedgerows, birds and butterflies across 25,000 acres of land. Jake, uh, a very warm welcome to the Better World series. Tell us what you and your team are doing in Holcomb and how it's impacting biodiversity. So um, I was appointed uh, to work at Holcomb in, uh, in November 2018. Um, uh, so I've been here for three and a half years. Uh, first six months were induction. Then your, uh, then your first year isn't your year. So actually, when you really start making a difference, I've only been doing it for two years. Uh, so the Holcomb Estate um, has Section 35 approved body status to manage the natural asset that is the Holcomb National Nature Reserve. This has multiple designations, Triple SI, SAC, SPA, Ramsar, Natra 2000, and is an area of outstanding national beauty visited by over a million people annually. Um, it's rich in nature when I arrived and we've just made it richer. We've looked at nature-based solutions. We've uh, continually monitored and managed uh, any changes in management and to understand the differences they make to the natural world. Uh, and in two years, we've brought our lapwing populations back to what they were 20 years ago. We've doubled, so Holcomb has the largest breeding colony of spoonbills and we've doubled that population. We've seen increase in general flora and fauna abundance. Um, and that's just the nature reserve, but actually uh, a huge chunk of Holcomb is farmland. It's home, it's, it's home to the agricultural revolution of over 200 years ago with the second Earl uh, encouraging people to discuss better and more sustainable agriculture. And we're implementing that in a more 21st century style uh, so we're looking at regenerative, sustainable environmental agriculture, encouraging biodiversity back to our fields while still producing high quality, high yielding uh, commodities. Thanks, Jake. We, we know that agriculture is one of the more carbon intensive sectors and that any net zero solution is likely to demand widespread changes to the way we farm. Uh, are you seeing any encouragement beyond what you're doing in Holcomb? Any encouragement developments in farming practices in the UK or beyond? Do you see? Do you see enough of that going on? It's never enough till it's at a hundred percent. But am I seeing? Am I seeing hope? Am I seeing a new ways that farmers and land occupiers are choosing to produce food for an ever-growing population? Yes, and I see this in Australia, South America, North America, and the UK. So. The, the catchphrase is regenerative agriculture. Those are some key principles that you adhere to. So minimal soil disturbance, reduced uh, uh, in, reduce inputs, i.e. artificial fertilizers and um, pesticides, looking at nature-based solutions. So understanding soil health and how we can mimic our food production systems uh, in a natural way that doesn't impact on yield. 
and there's some really encouraging results globally. There's some people doing some amazing stuff out there. Uh, and the key thing is nuance and context, because what I do on the North Norfolk coast is completely completely different to what someone in uh, in North Dakota in North America would do, uh, and even someone in South Australia. So it's understanding systems and nat nature-based solutions that work for your farm, that don't impact your yields, but actually uh, are more sustainable and long-term have wider, wider benefits to the environment. It sounds pretty straightforward when you put it like that, but it must be hugely challenging de depending on the type of land that you manage. Uh, the, the challenge is that we've all been, we've all participated in a system that was very convenient. It was short rotation. It was going straight to the fertilizer bag or the chemical can, um, thinking that I could, uh, this was an easy, cheap way of producing high volume food. Uh, the reality is it's now having an impact and the natural world is, um, uh, has an amazing resilience when it wants to be. So some of the systems that we uh, have implemented in the last 50 years of food production are actually becoming less reliant on, uh, on the artificial inputs, but actually are being challenged by nature. So we're looking at increased disease thresholds. We're looking at increased pest thresholds. Um, we have varieties of soft commodities that aren't resilient to climate change. And where we see drought and prolonged rain, we see increase in fungicides. We see crops that actually, without taking up the artificial nutrients, because fundamentally they were bred to complement one another, are actually this is a flawed this is a flawed food production system. And there uh, and we we are evolving, and uh, it's definitely feels like it's an evolution as opposed to a revolution in agriculture. And it will take change, and it will take time. But the the, the the global climate change clock is ticking and we need to we need the support from governments we need the support from global investment to understand this is something that we need to address w within the next 7 years you know i was speaking at cop 26 there was a lot of pledges but the reality is uh, we only have about 6 years to start implementation of this okay i want to come to government support a bit later but let's turn to demographics uh, with roughly 10 billion people uh, estimated to require food and water by 2050. Do you believe the work that you're doing on the Holcomb Estate is scalable and that major food producers can contribute to the net zero challenge in a regenerative and in a sustainable way? I believe the, the practices that we have implemented at Holcomb are, are replicable globally. The challenge is with 570 million farm businesses globally, and 500 million of those under two hectares, and 60% of those businesses at risk with, uh, with uh, global temperatures at 1.5, 60% of those businesses are unviable. So the challenges for those of us in temperate climates is to produce more food for an ever-growing population. But we have to do this that has less of a requirement for natural resources, can actually complement the wider environment, um, and. Uh, and without without reducing reducing our, our ability to produce quantity, you know the big challenge uh, the big challenge is it, it fundamentally is about waste reduction. We can supply sufficient food for that quantity of people. We just need to reduce the waste. 
How do we do that? So the way the way starts uh, right from uh, right from uh, the the primary producer looking for uh, the perfect crop with the perfect shape and the perfect yield. Uh, we need to be more relaxed right. about that. We need to have you know imperfections in our food that actually still provide us with a source of nutritious requirements. Immediately, you 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 uh, you reduce the amount of wastage. You know, you, you if you take the average. Uh, let's uh, a standard root vegetable like a parsnip. Um, the, the the supermarkets want a parsnip of a particular size uh, and weight to meet their packaging and their shelving uh, requirements. Actually, the reality in the field is actually you get multiple sizes. Anything up to ninety percent of parsnips in field actually don't meet human consumption. Ninety percent. So that's not that's not just about the producer, is it, Jake? That's us, the consumer, being a bit too picky when we go into the supermarket. I'm of the belief that it's not about the consumer. The consumer will fundamentally, if we look at the last two years and the challenges of providing food on our shelves, and we started to sh- see shelves with less food, but we still purchase the food that we saw. So if all of the food, because we've we've grown into this global consumer society where everything must be as we want it presented rather than what is offered and if you know the days of the days of my childhood of going into a, a greengrocer's and actually everything was in loose packaging and you would pick your fruit and vegetables mm. as as and when you required and you'd take them to the counter in a paper bag and probably not in, in a bag and they were weighed and, and that's how we historically um, effectively uh, retail foraging, let's call it. And that's that's what we were used to. But we've just changed into this society where everything's wrapped in cellophane. Everything, every chicken weighs exactly the same way. Every potato, every potato and every banana meets a, a particular size requirement. We've become fundamentally, as consumers, we've become lazy. But I think it's not the role of the consumers to radically change and challenge what they are being provided. It's actually down to the food supply chains to, to offer them a, a, a different selection. Okay, and so why aren't they doing that? Because I'm, I'm sure they would argue, if they were here today, they would argue that they're driven by uh, consumer demand. What, what is it that needs changing in, in the system for them to be more relaxed about I it? I think they created the perception of the demand. It wasn't the consumer. The consumer, as it evolved and as everything was... Uh, um, everything sat in these immaculate shelves and, uh, and fresh vegetables were there and were used by dates and sell by dates. That was the food, uh, the food providers that created that system. And they're the ones that need to change that. Um, uh, and when we, see, when we see some of the issues, and you know, I think um, that Harvest 23 is probably a biggest challenge than 22, and we see that the, the impacts of conflict on our food production systems. Actually, that's when the the large the large growers and the providers of the ag and the big agri businesses and the big global food sector will need to change change the way they have historically operated in the last forty years. So, Jake, the focus of investor attention, and we're here today to talk to an audience of, of large global uh, institutional investors. 
their attention towards climate change is starting to shift towards this recognition that loss of biodiversity is a big, big problem, not just environmentally, but economically too. I guess you welcome this interest, but how do you think investors, starting from a blank sheet of paper, can get involved in this area in a meaningful way and, and, and at scale? So I definitely feel that global investment feels that there is pressure for CSR, ESG, whatever you, you know. And so the, the, the earlier adopters are, are looking at, um, have moved into carbon markets and carbon markets have been slightly challenged because fundamentally the science is, uh, is not reliable. Um, we then recognize that there is a huge case for biodiversity loss. Uh, and so biodiversity and, uh, and landscape value is something that we, uh, we have historically never valued. And the biggest challenge is putting a price on biodiversity. Um, in all of the large, uh, the, you know, the, some of the businesses that I've had conversations with, so the Coca-Colas, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Visas, some of the large um, water companies are actually starting to recognize that if there is a catastrophic decline in biodiversity, fundamentally, that affects your bottom line beyond belief. So, uh, and actually, the money the money required uh, globally is quite pales into insignificance when you think of the 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 the, the money that we spend on defence and the money that we spend on uh, COVID track and trace. You know, if we look at the UK agriculture requiring a support mechanism of one point seven billion, um, uh, that's quite small amounts of money. Uh, and I've, done, I've, I've just done a deal with a, with a, a corporate um, where they were happy to invest in natural world uh, or, 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 in, or environmental services. And the, the amount of money was, uh, was, was less than their annual marketing budget. And actually then they're starting to realize that that investment, actually, if they are a business that is sustainable and recognize the importance of investing into the natural world, for the good of their business and for the benefit of their customer base, it actually it's not it's not as painful as uh, some might wish. And we look at some of the profit of the basis points that some of the global pension funds make. There's a Dutch pension company that makes annual profits that makes the 1.7 billion for UK agriculture uh, seem like a small change. Uh, so it's not, and it. It will evolve and people will start to, it's how you sell the story to those investors. You know, we can invest in large scale rewilding. We can invest in land use change. But actually, if we invest into sustainable agriculture that is good to provide to provide uh, healthy, nutritious food, which then, uh, which then improves the quality of our labor force, it's actually everyone starts to benefit. And it's until we have that recognition um, and we have a global consensus on how we produce our food and ensuring that we make space for nature and we uh, are less reliant on artificial impacts or inputs, then, th then there is a steady culture of change. And we just need, what we need is some great examples out there across continents globally that actually can start to pave a way and a solution going forward. If investors such as pension funds have a role to play in this, and I think, you know, all of us with a, a little pension pot would like to see our money put to, to, to better use than it has been uh, previously. 
They can't do this, going back to one of your earlier points, without government support, without policy and without incentives. Uh, are you optimistic that, that government is able to meet this challenge from a, from a policy point of view? Is it interested enough? Has it got the will? Does it have the champions to do it? I think our political leaders need to catch up. You know, and definitely uh, global business is more interested and they need uh, global, uh, so member state um, uh, policies that actually allow this investment to flow freely through markets. Um, we're too driven by GDP and actually we must be driven by long-term long sustainability. Um, you know, if I've seen, seen uh, some of the, the rhetoric and some of the articles coming out over the last sort of six months are really starting to, um, you know, COVID and uh, conflict pale into insignificant with climate change. Climate change is something that is really happening. And we have this ability, unless we are all unified, and unless uh, polit politicians across the world can agree, and they come together at these global conventions, and they pledge that they actually need to start making a difference. And we see that the COP27 that's going to happen in Sham El Sheikh in the autumn, where agriculture will be, the, will be a considerable focus in this. So I think these are, you know, time for less talk, more action is really important. So what do you want to see come out of COP27 specifically, Jake, that's going to help move this forward? We want to see the colour of the money. You know, there's less talk about putting out, you know, the, the billions of pounds here, the billions of pounds there that have been pledged in Rio, Paris and Glasgow that have never actually materialised. There's a recognition, there needs to be a recognition for, for the wealthier countries globally uh, to, um, to recognise that the, their impacts are some of the... Uh, poorer countries in the world um, uh, and, and the challenges that they have because they're the ones that are going to be impacted in the first instance. Um, uh, and we need, uh, we need a coming together. We need, a, we, need an understand, we need an understanding that it is happening. We need to, you know, the radical change to move a global community that is addicted to fossil fuels and how, and how we change that addiction and how we move forward. Uh, and it's the investment into that that is fundamentally important. Jake Fines, Director of Conservation at the Holcomb Estate and author of Land Healer, thank you for joining Net Zero Investors' Better World series of interviews sponsored by CCLA. We wish you all the very best for the future. Thanks, Jake. Mm -hmm.